Hello, friends. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Kenton. This is Rewild University's Unleash Your Life podcast. Hi there. Hey. Uh, I feel like I ask you this a lot. What do you ask me a lot? What? How I get such glistening, shining hair? No. What are you doing? You have been sitting... Smooth skin. Oil of Olay. Kenton, come on. You've been sitting there staring up at the sky now for how long? Oh, yeah. I'm looking for floaters. I guess that's what you call them. Floaters? Uh, I had a friend when I was a little kid, and he said, you'll see the Thunderbird if you look long enough. You know, those little clear things you see floating in the sky? Those are in your eyeballs. Yeah, they're in your eyeballs. Maybe. I guess so. Aren't it depends they? on your imagination. Yeah, the scientific explanation is that it's little bits of dust and oh, whatever else just floating around in your eyes. But I like to think sometimes that it's something more. There's a deeper significance. You know you can see sparkles in the sky too? Sparkles? Yeah. No. How do you do that? You look up and you just have to look for a while. I don't know how to explain how to do it. I got the girls so they could see it. Let me try. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see anything. Just keep looking, and you'll see all these sparkles of every color in the rainbow just shifting and sparkling everywhere. I think you have been staring at the sky too long, and that's your problem. (laughs) One thing I do know that you can see all the time, but you don't see it, is your nose. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. I mean, if you just close one eye and look down, there's your nose. There it is. And I guess if you pay attention, you can see it the whole time. There it is. It's always there. In but our we vision. don't see it, even though it's there. We ignore it. We totally ignore it. You know what it reminds me of? What? It reminds me of when you're editing something, and there's two of the same word, especially something like the, oh, the double yeah. the. And even really, really skilled editors and stuff will miss it because our mind just edits over it. Right. No, that is so true. I guess it's just that the information, the raw information coming into our senses... That's different than what we perceive. Yeah, perception is kind of strange. What do you mean? Well, we're reading that book. What's that book called? Oh, Sympathetic Vibrations. That's what you're talking about. The the little, what do you call it? The secondary title is Physics as a Way of Life by Casey Cole. That thing's awesome. Yeah, and I'm just fascinated by the way that our mind gets all of this sensory stimuli comes in and then our brain does all these weird things with it we don't actually perceive what we're perceiving remember after reading that book we kind of lived by the idea that reality dictates what you perceive and then we had a saying after that book it was perception equals reality right essentially we're creating we're deciding what it is that we're seeing right the one model is that there's the outside world and Input comes from the outside world and it comes into our brain and our brain paints a perfectly clear picture of what is outside of us. But the science is showing us very much the opposite. Essentially that information comes in and right away gets skewed by our brain and shifted and changed around. And then after that, we add intellectual or cognitive biases to it so that 
we change how we interpret that information. And so the outside world coming into us in a pure way, that's not really a reality. No, it's crazy how we distort things. I mean, just take the floaters. Those are probably there all the time. Same with our nose. Hopefully it's there all the time. <laughs> but when I look around regularly and I'm not thinking about it, I don't see it. You know, I did a fun experiment with the girls the other day. And this was on the sizes of things. So we were looking out the window at the big maple that we call sugar. And she's starting to get a little bit of orange on her. And you look out and the girls will say, wow, she is such a huge tree because she's really big. She's just giant. And I'll say, well, take your fingers and hold them up in front of your eyes. And let's see how big that image actually is that's coming into your brain. And they put their fingers up and sugar was about three inches tall. Oh yeah, this is like the classic something really large on the horizon and then you get yourself positioned just right with like your hand as though you're holding it or your fingers clasping the moon. And yeah. it's like that with a light at night if it's really black mm -hmm. and then you can't really tell where it's coming from. It just floats around. Yeah, our brain does weird things. We learned about that when we went on our ghost hunting exploration. We haven't told people about that. <laughs> <laughs> remember that? The Paulding light? I do remember that. And sure enough, the distant car lights. Now, I'm not saying those were the ghost, but anyway, the distant car lights, because we had no other reference, they were just in a sea of darkness, they would start to float around and people would see these red taillights glowing, floating around, and it looked a lot like a ghost. Well, I don't know. I think people are going to have to do their own exploration into that one. <laughs> That's what, in Michigan? That's in Michigan. Paulding, Michigan. Yeah. yeah. The Paulding light. Sometime Ooh. we'll have to tell all of our ghost stories and other strange events. Yeah, I think we will. So yeah. I want to bring up one other thing that you were doing with the girls the other day that has to do with this perception. Yeah. Which was the two pictures that were just gradient... Oh. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, will you explain that? I'm going to try to explain this. So imagine on the wall, and let's make it pretty big, about three, about, well, I don't know, six feet by six feet. What is that in meters? And there's a, <laughs> two meters by two meters. And what you have is apparently a big white sheet of paper, but it is kind of divided in half. What you have is you have one half, the left half, it's a gradient. So it actually is not pure white. It's a gradient from pure white on the left to a very, very light gray on the right. And then it starts over. So right in the middle of the giant piece of paper, again, going from left to right, it's going to be pure white gradient all the way to gray on the far right. Now here's the trick. If you put a rope going down the middle. So it covers up that boundary between the light gray and the pure white. Suddenly, both sides look exactly the same, seem to be exactly the same color. And we did this with the girls by taking the rope on and off, on and off, and they could not believe it. So when you see it with the rope on, it's all white. You remove the rope and then your eye perceives the boundary. It sees the gray and it sees the pure white. And what your mind does 
is it turns the entire left side of the paper into a gray color, and it turns the entire right side of the paper into pure white. Hmm. And it, it's mind-blowing that both sides are actually the same when they so clearly appear different. And you can switch it by just replacing that rope, and suddenly they both turn to the same color again. And you take the rope away, and clearly the left is darker and the right is whiter. How weird. Our brains are fascinating. Oh, girl, that's so when you're talking about boundaries in black and white, boy, that really makes me think about our culture, makes me think about people, like racism and politics and yes. arguments and wars and all the places, even down to how we treat our family members or our friends, all comes down to that boundary. And probably everything is a gradient. Everything is really a gradient in reality. And that is, that's the tricky thing. We have a reality that is shades of gray, but we can see that through this experiment that our mind, as soon as it perceives a boundary, then it changes the way that it perceives reality. It no longer can see that both sides are the same color. It sees one as different, very clearly different and convincingly different, but only because that boundary was there. And that boundary can be a perceptual boundary like that, but it can also be cognitive. It can be a belief. As soon as that boundary is in place, then the world literally is different for us. We perceive a completely different reality than someone who was not under the influence of that boundary. Wow, this is where we get the right and wrong, and yet other people's right is wrong for you, and where's the actual truth in any of it? <laughs> There's all kinds of examples. We, we can line up a some, quote, black people and white people in a big line. Let's just take a random sampling of black and white people, and we'll line up and we'll say, wait, skin color is a gradient, but it appears in our cultural mix that we have black people, quote, and white people, quote. And the same thing in those arguments that you're talking about. When I decide that something should look this way in our house, and you decide that something should look another way in the house, we've put a boundary into our head. And now we're not seeing clearly anymore. I'm seeing my side as clearly white and your side is clearly dark. In this case, mine is completely right and yours is completely <laughs> wrong. And I'm failing to see that it's a nuanced shades of gray. That's the reality. And because my ego is going to get involved, well, now I'm really going to defend my position because I'm not really seeking out the nuanced reality. I'm seeking out to prove so that my ego feels better to prove that my bias mm. is correct wow. in the eyes of reality. That's, so I feel like I've done that many times in my life. I feel like one thing I noticed from this is that you can convince yourself of almost anything then. Oh, isn't it true? And I think that in our information age, this has become all the more powerful because we all know if we've played around online, 
that you can go online and you can find very convincing evidence for just about anything you want to find. Oh yeah, I find that with food. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right, so you think, okay, are tomatoes good for me? Are tomatoes bad for me? Oh well, yeah. Right, nightshades, terrible. They're gonna cause inflammation, but wait, they have lycopene, that's really good for you. And the more that you dig into anything, the more you begin to see what whatever you're looking for is almost like that's the right thing. Yes, 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 yes. It's with this wealth of information, if we want to call it wealth, because it has it's a double-edged sword. With that wealth of information out there, you can literally go online and find very convincing arguments, whole blog posts and such, that those nightshades, that those tomatoes are going to cause inflammation and slowly kill you and create all kinds of bad negative effects in you. And you can equally go and read how they're just going to be amazing for your health. And realizing that this goes beyond just an idea. These biases become emotional. And we have all kinds of tomatoes lined up. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, counter. it's true. I mean, two different people could have two different reactions. If I'm of the bias that nightshades are terrible for you, I'm going to see that and think, oh, man, these people are really poisoning themselves. What are they doing? And if you're the person that has the bias that, oh, there's a, look at all that lycopene and everything. I'm like, oh, these people know what they're doing. They're really eating healthy food. What's the reality there? And what we're seeing when we go online is that people can influence our perceptions really, really strongly. This is what's behind advertising. It's what's behind a lot of documentaries out there that are warning about this or that. It's behind the various theories about, oh, coronavirus, let's say. It's rife in the food arena, as you've already spoken to. And people get really good at this, which should be a warning sign to us that I can go and read convincing arguments on both sides of things, that I have to be a little bit careful about what I intake and how I intake it. Am I going to just have my mind be ready to believe whatever I read? Or am I going to be critical? Well, what's scary, I think, is that not now some people are actually intentionally manipulative. I think that's very true because there's a lot of agendas out there. But you talked earlier about our ego being involved. And when the little me gets involved, it wants to be right. And so as soon as I have more and more people who are saying, oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's right. Then, of course, how does that little me feel? feels great. So I think some people out there just are really trying to be helpful. They've, quote, researched something. It seems true for them. And they want to be right. And so then there's this kind of snowball effect. You can see how, for instance, a documentary can be made. So I am a person I've read about how good tomatoes are for me. So I decide I'm going to really up the tomatoes in my diet. And I start doing that. And then two weeks after I start the tomatoes, I am diagnosed with an inflammatory condition. And wow. And the doc says, you're going to have this the rest of your life. This is chronic. And our mind, which loves to, of course, jump to boundaries, it wants clear conclusions, is going to very easily mistake correlation, possibly, for causation and say, wow, 
tomatoes, they cause this. And then I start to do research and I'm gonna find all kinds of research that tomatoes do indeed have all these inflammatory compounds. And I get really stoked up about this because it's destroyed my life. And then I make a huge documentary about it and find all kinds of other evidence for it where all along it might've been that I just happened to get sick during my tomato diet. And that's when it was gonna happen anyway. So sometimes it's not quite as things seem. It's just that the world has arranged itself to manipulate our beliefs and our perceptions so that we become very convinced of one idea or another. Well, what we're essentially talking about is if we're going to go do research outside of ourselves and take in any other information besides what we are experiencing, we have to trust that source or sources, and that's trust is kind of complicated when there's a world out there where there's money involved. Again, there's the little me. Anytime the little me is involved, then people want to be right, and so it's a really strong motivator. You know, all these different, you know, being famous. It's like you don't want to be wrong. So, who do we trust, and how? I mean, <laughs> that's what we have to ask ourselves when we sit down to look at information of any kind, or someone tells us something. And maybe we are hearing it from somebody who's very trustworthy. However, that tendency to really want to have your information be right, and then we skew things, that's very strong. So we have to be alert, I think. It's, <laughs> that trust is something that we don't realize often is going on. So for instance, I believe there was a moon landing. And I also have to admit that I have no direct evidence of my own. I certainly did not go and walk on the moon. So I have to trust some people and some evidence in order to convince myself that this happened. Now, if I go and read and look at the evidence that other people are saying, you know, that there was not a moon landing, well, over time, if I'm open to that, I can start to convince myself that there wasn't because they, of course, are presenting convincing arguments. Now, I won't be convinced if my mind is already locked into a bias. So if I am really, really sure there was a moon landing, then I will completely disregard any other evidence. But if I'm curious and I'm wondering, then my mind is open and vulnerable to being shifted to another idea. And that's where things get tricky because this, this can be a vulnerability in the sense of if my mind is very open, I can be convinced of all kinds of things. But at the same time, if my mind is not open, then I'm going to be convinced only of my own pre-existing ideas and I'm gonna be deluding myself. So in either case, I am open to becoming deluded. <laughs> Maybe you already are deluded. I'm not sure about this sparkle in the sky thing. That is real. <laughs> Anybody real. can try it. It's stare real at for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does make it tricky because take me, for example, a self-proclaimed perfectionist. I want to know what's going to be the best for me and the best for my family. And so, boy, it's really challenging because there is information usually multiple different kinds of information that support, let's say, two sides of an argument, 
what am I supposed to do? I'm trying to be open-minded. I'm trying not to have a bias. Yet both sides are very clear in their convincing arguments. Yeah. And parenting is one place where that really comes into play. I mean, we read all kinds of information about a love-based parenting, where essentially you don't have any rules. Your one rule is just to love your child. And we read people who also were saying, you've got to have your kids be disciplined. And if you're listening to this and you are a parent or have thought about being a parent, you might find that your mind is already going into a camp. It wants to seek a boundary. It wants a line. It wants to define itself and say, oh yeah, love-based would never work. Or, oh, that discipline creates only temporary solutions, but doesn't create a child that has long-lasting inner motiv motivation. And <laughs> wow, how do we make sense of all this? This is what I was going to ask. I was going to say, how do we begin to see things clearly when we know for a fact, first of all, that the information coming in isn't necessarily translated by our brains as what's out there. I mean, right. we're, we're translating it differently. So number one, our perceptions aren't even actually true necessarily. As shown by the size thing <laughs> or the gradients. Or the nose on your face that you don't see every day. Yeah. Okay. And okay, also people are out there, they're using the latest psychology or whatever to manipulate our perceptions. So we're going to be believing what they want us to believe. Ads, news programs, documentaries. Oh, yeah. I mean, what do we do? <laughs> you know, for a long while, we explored Zen Buddhism. And to me, at least, the root of Zen was to cast off all biases. It helped me to come to a place where I felt like I do not know anything. Before, I didn't realize that there were all kinds of things that I felt really strongly about being real that I actually had little or no evidence for at all. But Zen, whether we want to adhere to it as a philosophy or religion, or just grab some of the elements of it, the elements that ask us to see things purely, as purely as we can, it was a really good guideline a remembrance that we humans probably cannot become free of confirmation bias, of that tendency to look around the world and interpret evidence so that it fits in with our current world ideas. But we can manage it. We can reduce our bias by doing this really radical questioning. And whenever my mind latches on to something and says, this is what is right, this is what is real, to stop and really question that. And for me, at least, that felt so freeing because my mind became less locked down on ideas and more able to listen to other sides, to hear other people. It's made life more fascinating because ideas that I would have completely discounted before, I might be open to exploring them. But at the same time, I don't feel as vulnerable because my mind does not tend to latch on in the way it did before to an idea or a, a hypothesis or a theory or whatever it may be that someone's trying to convince me of. 
it just made me more critically minded of everything from religion to science to philosophy to certainly my own ideas and thoughts and biases. Well, I think it's really important to have an awareness. And that is always, I think, the first step. Because I'm going to fully confess here that we definitely fall into confirmation bias a lot. Oh, yeah. And that's going to happen. And so I think if I'm aware that that happens, I know that it's a thing. I know that my perceptions aren't necessarily what's real. And I can be conscientious of that happening. That's my first step. Yeah. So having awareness hey, wait, I'm forming this opinion and I'm really thinking it's right. And wow, look at me, I'm defending this with tooth and nail. Wait a second here. Then I think when we can step back, notice that we're doing that and then say, hey, wait, I've committed to cultivating an open-minded attitude of asking questions and I can only have wonder. I can only question when I know that I don't actually know the truth. And so having awareness, then asking myself, well, wait a second, do I know this to be true? And maybe even if I know something to be true for myself, A, is it always true for me? Will it always be true for me? And how do I know it's true for other people? Mm. So there's so much wrapped up in that. And I almost feel like we should go to our action points because I kind of want to talk about some of the ways in which you can cultivate awareness. I think we're ready for it. I mean, we've kind of spelled out how perception is really, really faulty. And the only time that perception is we're going to be think it's true is when we're convinced enough to delude ourselves. So, <laughs> well, and this reminds me of a quote I just saw recently by John Lubbock. He was kind of a neat guy that did a whole bunch of different things in his life, but he also well, back in Darwin's time. Yes, he also was a scientist, and he said, and I may not get this perfectly right, but he said, "What we see depends mainly depends on what we're looking for." Ah, oh, you know what? There's a quote by a physicist, a more modern physicist. I wish I could remember who it was. It's almost the same. It basically says that the what we're going to find in our experiments is really decided by the experimental setup and, and what we set out to look for. Yeah, I feel like there should be a branch of science that kind of goes out there and tries to disprove everything and then within doing that discovers new things hmm. that... Do you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, oh, wait a second. We thought that wasn't true, but look, it is, but only because we were trying to disprove this other thing. And anyway, <laughs> well, it's time for you to unleash your life. And we yeah. are going to start with action point number one being mindfulness and meditation. Could you have guessed? <laughs> you know, I think this has been one of the most powerful things in helping us to maybe be... I'm just going to say 2% less deluded than we used to be because <laughs> it's a lifelong journey. Anything mindfulness related is. But the thing that mindfulness and meditation practice has done for us, I would say, is that it has allowed us to note when our mind locks down. And then sometimes with that awareness, we're able to stop and get out of egoic mode and look more carefully and question ourselves and question our own biases and listen. Well, and for me personally, I feel as though meditation and mindfulness has helped me to slow down. 
because I know for myself personally that when I am rushing, when I think these things have to be done, this has to be done now, I don't have enough time, that that is when my confirmation bias and all my perceptions crystallize. Mm. And I, I feel like I don't have time to ask questions. This, this is the right way and do it my way, which is the right way. <laughs> and wow. so the meditation and the mindfulness cues me into, look at you, you are rushing and spiraling, going faster and faster and faster. Slow down for a second. Make sure that what you're doing needs to be done and ask yourself, does it have to be done this way? Is it my way or the highway or is there something else going on? That is so nice. And I think we've noted that in our own relationship where we had a lot less mindfulness and a lot more doingness in the past. And we would have really big showdown fights, arguments about trying to prove that one or the other of us was right about something. And those have basically disappeared because I think we have stopped. We've slowed down. We're not perfect at being slow by any means, but we've done it enough that there's an awareness and we can catch ourselves when we're getting into that, that speed that ceases all listening. Hmm. So take up some meditating. There's a lot of great apps out there for cell phones. Uh, or attach it, if you can, to something else you do. Say, okay, before I brush my teeth, but after I've had my morning cup of coffee, I'm going to sit for three minutes or five minutes or an hour. Whatever is great for you, whatever you can do. But I'm going to take this time just to sit, and then I'm just going to watch my thoughts. And the key here is just noticing, oh, look, there I'm thinking. Okay, I'm just go back. Maybe I count my breath. Maybe I have something I focus on. Oh, look, there I'm thinking okay, go back, out my breath. I feel like for me, when I meditate, there are days where I'm constantly, <laughs> oh, look, there I'm thinking, okay, oh, there I'm thinking, oh, there oh, I'm thinking. Yeah. But the great thing about that is that it's just like doing push-ups for your brain. The more you do it, the more you notice. And then during the day, I can notice, oh, look, there I'm thinking, and I'm thinking my way is right. Or, oh, look, I'm listening to this person or this documentary, and I have my confirmation bias. Hmm, interesting. Wow, yeah. <laughs> that's That sums it up, you know. Or, or maybe it doesn't, because we also have to remember that mindfulness practice has so many side benefits. So if you're going to add that meditation or that mindfulness, as Rebecca described, it's going to just, it's going to hit every part of your life and make it all a little bit happier. Well, and when we're mindful, we can have gratitude. And gratitude is so deliciously nourishing. It mm. has so many benefits too. Well, let's see here, action point number two. Okay, when you're arguing for something, look at the other side. This is a little exercise, essentially, you can do. It's like the argument catch. And you do it when you catch yourself about to make an argument. This will happen if you, let's say, frequent YouTube and you see a video and you really don't agree with what the person's saying and you find yourself there in the comments and you're about to tell the person how wrong they are or another commenter, how wrong they are and how right you are. And that is the moment when you find yourself about to do that or say in an argument with a spouse or a child to stop and question your belief. We're very used to questioning other people's beliefs. 
we do it all the time by that default confirmation bias that says, there's whispering in our ears, you're right, everybody else is wrong. <laughs> and it's kind of funny that basically everybody thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong, which should be a pretty strong clue to us that <laughs> it's very unlikely that we're the only person that's right. <laughs> it's like the emperor's new clothes. Yeah. yeah. Like you don't question it, but wait, what do you mean? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's important, too, to realize that you don't have to change your bias. You don't have to change what you think. Maybe what you believe is still what you believe, but at least you can see there is another side and where might they be coming from. Because in the end, I think, for me at least, it's more satisfying, even if I disagree with someone, to kind of understand where they may be coming from. So I can say, hey, you know what? I get it. I don't agree with that, but I could see where you're coming from. And that just makes me feel like, I don't know, the world is a better place because people aren't just having these ideas randomly. Although I guess that's true too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it helps us to recognize that the person making the video, let's say it's about how evil tomatoes are for us. The person making the video is under the influence of their own confirmational bias. And they are seeking out evidence to prove their point, and they're presenting evidence to prove their point. Now, you can have the opposite belief, but then if you go and you listen, whether it's to their video, that might be too charged, or go do your own research on how tomatoes can maybe not be so healthy, then what you're doing, and I say this with a big IF, a big IF, if your mind is mindful enough to not A, just delete all the evidence that you look at because of your own confirmation bias, and B, not so vulnerable that it's just going to get sucked into that other belief, then it can learn to listen. Our mind can learn to take in other evidence and to look at it critically, take it with a grain of salt, so to speak. I feel that it is perfectly possible for us as human beings to hold two alternate ideas or beliefs at the same time. It's possible to have two conflicting feelings or emotions at the same time. I feel like our culture doesn't prepare us for that, but I think it's completely possible. And that because there isn't that outlet for that in our culture, we can feel a lot of angst about that when we feel both happy and sad at the same time, because I think culturally we're conditioned to have one emotion regarding something. And usually in our culture, there's also an appropriate emotion that you should have about something. So when we have two or more emotions or when we can see two or more sides of something, that becomes challenging. But I think it's really beautiful because then we begin to grow as individuals and realize that there isn't a black and a white. I'm glad you brought that up. And it's, as you say, and I think you're really correct there. I agree with you. Why, thank you. Yes. Do you want to come to my confirmation bias I do. side? I was hoping I could. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it involves snuggling. Oh, all right. <laughs> it would be that, oh, my, now you've completely made me lose my trade of thought by making me think about snuggling. <laughs> all right, snap okay. back. All right, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Because... For a long time, I've felt in my life, like I can strongly believe something, but I don't really believe it. And I mm. haven't been able to explain that to people. 
And I think it's made me a good listener because I, even if I'm really passionate about something, I'm a very passionate environmentalist, I don't pretend to know that it's, you know, maybe it would actually be good if everybody drove giant SUVs and we tipped the scale of the greenhouse gases and the whole world became super hot because that would let some new organism evolve and this grand new thing happen on Earth. You know, I mean, we would have looked up at the, if, if it was indeed an asteroid coming down to destroy the dinosaurs and looked and said, oh my gosh, this is horrible. The world's going to end. But that allowed a new blossoming. So I have to, had to realize at some point that my environmentalism was kind of just wanting to keep things the way they currently are in an Earth system that is always changing and evolving through giant extinctions and world events. Wow. That's a big subject. Well, we got heavy there all of a sudden. <laughs> okay, let's go to action point number three. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's so many interesting things out in the world, and I think what you're saying is valid because we can't know, we can't know what is best for ourselves or for the planet or for other people. And that's really good to just be open-minded. So having your belief, but having it lightly. It's sort of the palm up and open versus the clasped fist clutching tightly. You just said what I said is valid. You validated me. Oh yeah, action point number three. Valid, practicing validation. We gotta plug a book here. Yeah, I think we've plugged it before. It's called The Power of Validation. That is Melissa Cook and Karen Hall. It's wonderful. It's geared towards children kind of ages five to, I don't know, teenish years. However, the principles work for everyone. And the reason we're talking about it here with this confirmation bias and our perceptions and the way we look at the world is because when you validate someone, you have to stop. You can't go steamrollering into, this is my idea, this is what I think. You actually have to stop, you have to listen, and you have to say, wait a minute, I don't know what the other person is thinking or feeling, but whatever they're thinking or feeling, it's it's clearly what they're thinking and feeling, and therefore it's valid. Doesn't mean I agree with them. Doesn't mean I say, oh yeah, you're totally right. It means I step out and I say, look, I understand you've had a history of you ate a lot of tomatoes, then you got this inflammatory diet, and I can see that you have some concerns about tomatoes being healthy and you're probably concerned about my health too. And I haven't said I agree with them. All I've said is I see that what you feel has a place. Wow. I feel like validation, like mindfulness, is something that just sweeps across your whole life because it alters all of your relationships. Instead of telling people they are wrong, now you're listening to them, you're validating their current thoughts and feelings, and that opens the door to further communication. And I feel like where I see validation operating, I see change possible. When two people are locked into opposing views, they're stuck in their own confirmation bias, and they're just telling the other person they're wrong. I mean, how many times have you been convinced of somebody of something by somebody telling you just how wrong you I are. I was just going to say, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's trying to say something and then you're not validated. You're told, well, that's totally wrong. My way is right and here's why. I mean, has that ever convinced you? It has not convinced me. It's extremely amusing to watch people who are arguing sometimes, but um, 
well, I mean, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just sometimes you see, boy, you both are so stubborn that no one's going to give. You guys are going to be here for hours. And validation just is like opening the window and having a breath of fresh air come in because suddenly you realize that what is valuable is the understanding and the communication. And you realize that you're stepping away from confirmation bias towards an understanding of what I feel is at the heart of everything, which is just an organic whole. It all moves together. It's different in every moment. And there aren't any boundaries that we can put on it. Everything is a gradient. And we actually can't even see it 100% clearly. But when we validate, we start to say, look, the bottom line is, Everything is different all the time. What's going on in this situation? It's a great book, highly recommended read. I think it has the power to change your life. And speaking of validating, maybe it would be a cool if you validated my mm. viewing of the sparkles the in the sky and you looked okay. a little more carefully okay. and opened okay. your mind because okay. I think you're locked in by your own confirmation bias. I... Thanks, hun. I will try. I will go and try. Let's go try right now and try to explain to me what I'm supposed to do. You know what? I just have to step in and say how grateful I am for all of you out there who are joining us on these podcast episodes. It's really, really fun to share with you, and I hope that you will send us an email or leave a comment and tell us what you've learned in your life about your perception, how you get to stop and notice when you're in confirmation bias, what things have helped you out. Love to you all. Sparkle on!